Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 31. Quite chop-fallen. Fortunately, we were only playing two a day in Vancouver, so I made it to the Orpheum with minutes to spare for our tea-time performance. "'Have you been to the hospital?' Tilly whispered as I arrived in the wings during the preceding turn, still doing buttons-up. "'How is he?' I remembered the doctor confronting me angrily as nurses unswaddled the patient and returned into his sickbed. "'Where in the name of all that's holy have you been?' "'I thought the fresh air might do him some good,' I'd said. "'Oh, you did, did you?' Well, let me disabuse you of that notion right away. This man is very much worse. He has a serious pneumonia, and the bacterial infection has spread to his jaw. We shall have to remove all of his teeth. I shook my head. Not too good, I said. Poor Arthur, Tilly said. You look exhausted. Have you been sitting with him all of this time? Kind of, I nodded. Back down in the green room after the performance, I fielded solicitous inquiries from just about everyone. Not quite everyone, though. Young Mr. Chaplin managed to contain his curiosity, and assured all Wimmy's friends that he was comfortable and in good hands. Alf Reeves was leaning against the doorframe, his arms folded. "'Funny thing,' he said. "'I went to visit Mr. Walker myself this lunchtime, and the hospital said they'd lost him.' "'Lost him?' I said, not liking the sound of this. "'Yes, he disappeared. I didn't say anything, because I didn't want to upset you all with shows to do. But then I went again—' just half an hour ago, and he was back. Back, and in very much poorer shape, I'm sorry to say. Where had he been? Freddy said. I don't know. Perhaps you can enlighten us all, Arthur. I sighed, took a deep breath, and explained about the Nooksack expedition. Got a fair few laughs as well, which I noted carefully to tell Wimmy about in due course. I felt sure he would already be looking forward to making merry with that little anecdote. Well... Alf said, shaking his head. I'm sure you meant well, but that sounds incredibly irresponsible to me. It does, a voice chimed in. Unbelievably irresponsible. Charlie had perked up, having spotted a fresh stick to beat me with. Yeah, like you care, I muttered, turning to square up to him. All right, Alf said, a mother separating two squalling brats. Let's leave it at that, shall we? As the company milled about, I noticed that Wren was not there, and now that I thought of it, she'd not been among the well-wishers asking after Whimsical Walker either. I wandered out into the corridor and caught sight of her through the open door of the girls' dressing room. She was sitting by herself, staring into a mirror. Her hair was different somehow, let loose and falling over one half of her face, so that I could barely see her left eye. As I watched, she swept the hair up and let it fall again and I thought I saw redness there, swelling, and even the beginning of a bruise. She reached for some makeup and was about to make a start on covering up, when she saw me reflected in the mirror, looking at her, and she hurriedly hopped up and slammed the door on me. I felt a chill. Had Hurley hit her? And what did that mean? Was the cat out of the bag? I couldn't think clearly, though, couldn't focus on that, because all I was thinking about was thumping Edgar Hurley. 
I needed to know the truth of the matter, of course, first, and it was not easy to envisage a way of engineering an opportunity to talk to Wren alone, especially if we desperately needed to be discreet. As it was, we barely had anything to do with one another between those frenzied bouts of grappling in the dark of the boxcar, and I certainly couldn't wait until the weekend and the ride down to Portland. In the end, I lurked behind as Freddy, Stan, Charlie and the others all made their way up to the wings for the evening turn. Edgar Hurley gave me a look like thunder as he pushed past, or was I imagining it? The girls filed out of their dressing room, Emily, Tilly, Annie, Amy, and bustled away up the stairs, but Wren was lingering behind, perhaps still putting the finishing touches to her camouflage. I stepped in and shut the door behind me. "'Arthur!' she gasped, her hand flying to her mouth, a makeup brush clattering onto the tabletop. I reached out and slowly lifted her hair from the left side of her face. She'd covered up well, but she was clearly going to have quite a shiner. He did this. "'Listen, because of me, because of us. Listen, Arthur, there is no us. It was just a bit of foolishness. Just foolishness, that's all. I'm going to knock his block off. No, no, Arthur, you mustn't. Then we will all be out on our ears. Don't you see that?' Be worth it, I grumbled. She put her hand on my arm. It was just one, one punch. And I'd asked for it, hadn't I, really? I had. And he was so sorry afterwards. He wept, Arthur. Edgar wept. I've never seen him do that before. And he blamed himself for driving me away, and promised faithfully that things would be different from now on, said it had made him realise how important I was to him, suddenly faced with losing me, do you see? So we're going to make a fresh start. "'Eddie and I, and forget this ever happened. "'So you must not confront him, or speak to him, "'or ever bring the subject up again. Do you understand?' Uh, "'And now look, we must hurry. Chop-chop, or they'll be starting without us. Come on!' "'The next morning I went along to the hospital to check on the patient. "'I was looking forward to seeing his face, albeit sans teeth,' I remembered with a shudder when I told him how many laughs the Nooksack story had garnered the previous evening, and checked off the salient points as I walked. Totem pole, Indian chief in clown tights, mud hut, heat good, Wimmy's head bobbing out to sea amongst the ice flows. I made my way up to the room where the old boy was quartered, and found Alf Reeves in the corridor outside. "'What ho, Alf?' I said with early morning jauntiness. "'How is the old bean?' Alf looked at me, and his expression froze my heart. "'He's gone, Arthur,' Alf said bleakly. "'He's gone. He didn't make it through the night.' I sat heavily, and Alf slumped beside me. "'Charlie will be pleased,' I said. "'Now then,' Alf scolded. "'That's not fair, is it? Not fair at all.' "'No, you're right. Sorry. I'm just... it's a shock.' We sat there, staring blankly at the tiled floor. "'I suppose I shall have to make arrangements.' Alf said, after a minute or two. A funeral? Well, not here. We shall have to send him back to England, to his wife. I didn't even know he was married. Oh, yeah, for years. They had a home in Hull. Sons, too, I think. He never spoke of them to me. No? No. Just that bloody donkey he trained to sing and performed with in front of Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle, Alf joined in, and we laughed. A sad laugh. A hollowed-out, empty laugh. But a laugh all the same. I went for a long, long walk. Nothing else would do. My feet took me into a large square with a grand new building down one side, columns on the front, a Union Jack fluttering from its flagpole. 
It was a courthouse, and I gave it a wide berth. I was feeling guilty enough as it was. I was blaming myself, of course. If I hadn't let those half-baked nooksacks chuck the old fool into an icy river, he might still be with us. If I hadn't met Whimsical Walker at all, hadn't gone to the circus that night with Lance, then he might still be capering in his variegated tights, maybe on the stage of the Drury Lane Theatre. I couldn't settle, couldn't sit still, couldn't stop to eat or drink anything. I just wanted to punch somebody. That half-naked idiot of a medicine man, I wanted to land a good one on him. And Edgar Hurley, too, kept flashing before my angry eyes, that self-satisfied little smirk on his face. I thought about wiping that away, giving him a black eye to match the one he'd given Wren. Most of all, though, I thought about thumping Charlie Chaplin. It was down to him, actually. If Charlie hadn't been so hostile to old Wimmy, put so much pressure on him, agitated for the old fellow's removal, then he wouldn't have been panicked into trying the nooksack cure in the first place. He'd just have sat there getting over whatever had been wrong with him in the first place, whether that was down to the filthy air in Butte, or his encounter with the late Mr Skunk, or both. Oh yes, I blamed myself, but I also blamed Charlie. The bad news travelled faster than I did to the theatre that afternoon, and when I arrived our number one was standing on a chair, making a little rallying speech to the troops. The show must go on, that's what dear old Wimmy would have said, Charlie was saying. Surely, though, as a, as a mark of respect, Charles Griffiths muttered grimly. We'll raise a glass to him later, Charlie said, but for now we have a job to do and he would want us to do it. So come on, everyone, let's get our heads up and do our best. He jumped down and got on with his own preparations, but no one else seemed to share his business-like mood. Everyone was very down, naturally enough, and judging by the way the others started avoiding me, it was apparent that no one else shared my opinion that Charlie was to blame. No, I was carrying that particular can all by myself. It was a thoroughly miserable week that week in Vancouver, one of the worst, and the mood didn't show any signs of improving when we all boarded the boxcar once again for the trip down to Portland. After a while I couldn't bear the baleful looks and sidelong glances any longer and took myself through the storage section of the car and out onto the observation deck for a bit of privacy. I had no thought that Wren would follow me. She and Edgar had been sitting together, holding hands since we left the station, occasionally pecking one another on the cheek in a faintly nauseating fashion. At least the spectre of discovery seemed to have been lifted, that was one good thing, but I couldn't help thinking back to the excitement of those frantic encounters. The observation deck was freezing cold, and I couldn't stand it out there for more than a few minutes. I couldn't face rejoining the company, and so I ended up burrowing into a space behind where the set was stacked up. There was just enough room to lie down, and I pulled a couple of big coats off the costume rail to stretch out on. I suppose I drifted off. I hadn't slept much for the previous few days, what with Wimmy on my mind and Wren, so I was pretty tired. I awoke after who knows how long to find Tilly leaning over the stack of set panels and looking down at me. "'So, this is where you're hiding yourself,' she was saying. "'Tilly?' I said, half wondering if I was still asleep. "'Looks rather cosy, actually.' "'Room for another?' she said. "'Another what?' I said dopily. "'Move over!' She clambered round into my little cubbyhole, over my shins, and laid herself alongside me, propping herself up on one elbow. "'Hello there,' she said. "'Well, hello. "'Is this where you had your little liaisons with Mrs Hurley?' "'No. "'You know about that? "'My dear, everybody knows about that.' "'What? "'What do you mean?' Wren wasn't particularly secretive about it. She practically hung a signpost out. I was appalled. 
Everybody knows. Well, certainly all the women do. Maybe some of the fellows are a little more dense. Well, whatever it was, it is over now, I said. She and her husband have had a big reconciliation. Of course they have, Tilly said breezily. That was what it was all about, wasn't it? That was why she was so brazen about it. She wanted him to notice, wanted him to do something. He did do something. He hit her. Yes, and then grovelled for forgiveness, no doubt. And now everything in their garden is hunky-dory. She used you, my friend. I see, I said. The scales are falling from my eyes. Has she broken your poor heart? No. I'm relieved, really, more than anything. I've been afraid that at any minute Alf would be obliged to call moral turpitude and chuck me out of the company once again. Well, quite so. I didn't enjoy life outside the Carno organisation that much. Did you not? I told her then about sleeping rough at the fun factory, about the rummens from Rome, and how Stan's rather happy-go-lucky business sense had done for it. I told her about the plaster eggs on stilts and being stranded in Belgium, about Poverty Corner and my brief career as a pavement artist in Trafalgar Square. As I talked, and she laughed and prompted me for more details, I realised just how much I'd missed exactly this, talking to Tilly, sharing the stuff of life with her. I felt as though nothing was real until I'd told her about it, and in recent months I'd even caught myself going over things in my head in conversation with an imaginary Tilly just to get them straight in my head. Now at last, here was the real Tilly again, and I poured it all out to her. I told her about how I'd retired from show business to get away from being dragged into Fred Carno's divorce against my will, about going back into service in Cambridge, and finally my chance association with Whimsical Walker. Poor Wimmy, she said sadly, such a terrible thing. They all seem to be blaming me, I said, nodding in the rough direction of the passenger cabin. Well, in fairness, you did allow some Indians to parboil him and then chuck him in a river. Ah, yes, but if Charlie hadn't... I don't think it was Charlie's doing, she said, and I didn't press the point. Charlie, I began, he has been monopolising you, rather. Charlie is very attentive. It's really very attractive, actually. He makes a girl feel like the Queen of the May, all dressed in white, flowers in her hair, with everyone dancing around her, paying homage to her beauty and her innocence, her purity. Trouble is, it's a hard act to keep up day after day, and speaking as the girl in question, one always feels like there will be another Queen along next year, even purer, even more innocent, and, well, younger, not to put too fine a point on it. She looked away. There was something on her mind, and I waited for her to tell me, but nothing was forthcoming. In the end, I broke the silence by concluding my own tale. Anyway, I said, it was only the merest chance that I happened to bump into Stan, and then Alf as well, just the night before this tour sailed, and if I hadn't, then old Wimmy would never have come to America, would never have... I stopped, a lump forming in my throat. Don't, Tilly said, putting her finger on my lips. Her touch was electrifying. I didn't speak for fear she would move and break the contact. I looked up into her eyes, her lovely green eyes, brimming with kindness and tenderness. "'Why did you come looking for me?' I said when she finally moved. "'I was worried about you. I care about you. I was afraid you were brooding all by yourself with no one to turn to. I thought you might need a friend.' "'Always,' I whispered. With aching slowness we moved closer and closer, with minute pauses as we each seemingly sought confirmation from the other that this was really what we wanted to happen. And then our lips met, and we were kissing, tenderly, gloriously, overwhelmingly. 
When we finally broke apart, we both seemed to realise that either we became covered with embarrassment, scrambled awkwardly out of our hidey-hole, and tiptoed back to our seats as though nothing had ever happened, or we went on. We went on. No one disturbed us. No one found us. We lost ourselves in the rhythm of the train, in each other. At one important juncture, she whispered, Is this what you and Wren did, then? Shh, I said. It was as different to the frantic fumbling that Wren and I had indulged in as chalk is to cheese, because that was lust, a means to an end for her, as it turned out. Not even lust. It was play-acting. This was love. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 32. Monkey Business. Hey, fellas, I tell you, this guy is the greatest comic I ever saw. This? This is the guy? The San Diego dressing room I was sharing with Charlie, Freddy and Stan was suddenly invaded by four energetic lads, all, mystifyingly, waddling around doing an imitation of Chaplin as Archibald Binks in his oversized shoes. They stopped after a minute, dissolving into laughter, shoving one another around. They looked like they couldn't keep still for a moment, even if you paid them to do it. "'Sorry about that,' said one of the lads, the leader, stepping forward. "'Julius Marks. I caught your act in Winnipeg. Haven't stopped talking about it since. I had a stopover, a couple of hours to fill, waiting for a train, so I didn't have time to introduce myself then. And these are my brothers. Here's Arthur, and Leonard, and that's Milton.' We launched into introductions and handshaking that quickly became a chaotic eight-handed routine, during which the brothers managed to tangle all their arms together into a knot. "'Say, are you guys on the bill this week? That's swell.' Julius turned to his brothers. Wait till you see this guy. He's hilarious. In fact, fellas, the whole act is a hoot. Every one of you. But especially this guy. Catch you later. And they were off. It was like a whirlwind had paid us a visit. Nothing in the room seemed to be exactly as it had been before. The previous six weeks had seen us play Portland, Tacoma, Sacramento, Oakland, San Francisco and Los Angeles. I still marvelled at what had happened in that boxcar. Perhaps, I thought, it had been an affirmation of life in the shadow of death, Whimsical Walker's last gift to me. Earth-shattering though it had undoubtedly been, it had not wrought a massive change in our circumstances, but I knew it wouldn't. 
Tilly had continued to spend all her spare time with Charlie, but of course she had to. She couldn't just bring her relationship with him to a sudden and dramatic close because she knew what that would mean, a one-way ticket back to Blighty. And if she had happened to mention that I was the reason, then that would have been my reward as well, and both of us would have been on the outs. Clearly Charlie needed handling. Tilly and I hadn't talked about it, but I felt we had an unspoken understanding. I had to leave it to her and let things play out. After all, there was still plenty of time left on this leg of the tour, and the promise of another circuit to follow, so I could afford to play a long game. The important thing was that her feelings for me were surely clear, so for the first time in an age I could permit myself to hope. The brothers' marks were appearing in a sketch entitled Mr Green's Reception, along with a couple of male singers and a chorus of fifteen pretty girls in short skirts, blonde hair and pink stockings. It had grown out of a previous offering called Fun in High School, in which Julius played the role of a Germanic teacher organising a school concert, and the others were his dummkopfed students. There was something of a fashion in those days for putting on a funny German accent, and those that did were known as Dutch comics, either because they sounded Dutch, or because the word Deutsch, the German word for German, did. That fashion would die out entirely in a couple of years' time, as I'm sure you can imagine. We went to see it at the first available opportunity, the Monday matinee. Charlie sat in the middle of the front row, as he would often do, especially when assessing a rival. The better the act, the less likely he was to laugh, or even break into a smile, but the Marx brothers didn't know this. How could they? I saw Julius spot Charlie almost as soon as he came on stage, and from then on his performance was directed right at the middle of the front row. Every gag that Charlie failed to respond to drove him into more and more manic excesses, no matter how well the sketch was being received in the rest of the auditorium. The other Marx boys, too, began to be driven mad by Charlie's stone face, until the final curtain came down on their act and they sailed off stage in a boat on rollers, wistfully casting a last, uncomprehending glance his way across the orchestra pit. For my part, their antics had me in stitches. Leonard was a very nimble pianist, Arthur played the harp, and all of them could sing, but I would happily have skipped some of the musical numbers to see more of the boys in full flow. "'Pretty good, eh?' I said to Charlie as we slipped backstage during the interval. "'Hmm,' Charlie replied, distracted, and I knew that meant it had been very good indeed. In their dressing room, though, Julius and the boys were downcast when I stuck my head round the door to congratulate them. "'It's just his way,' I said. "'He never laughs at anything.' "'Is that right?' Julius said, his eyes narrowing. "'Sure,' Leonard said. "'He's like that guy, remember, who locked himself in his dressing room "'and turned the taps on full so he couldn't hear anyone else getting a laugh.' "'Julius nodded slowly. "'Here's what we're going to do,' he said. "'We'll take a box for this evening's performance, "'and I'm ready to bet he can't get any one of us to crack a smile. "'You tell him that.' "'Good luck,' I said, and went along the corridor to our dressing room. "'You upset those marks, boys,' I said to Charlie. "'What do you mean?' he said, looking up from tying his tie.' sitting right at the front, not giving them anything. They say they're taking a box for the evening show and they're betting you can't get a laugh out of any of them. Charlie smiled. Oh, really? A little extra interest in a particular performance was always welcome, and so I'm sure I wasn't the only one to sneak a peek at the boxes when the curtain came up that evening. This particular empress had only two. The one stage right was empty, while the one stage left was occupied by four nuns, black and white habits, wimples, the whole kit and caboodle. Our act got underway, and I caught a quick smirk from Charlie as he noticed the occupants of the box. Clearly those nuns were the Marx brothers in costume, trying to throw him off his game. 
He began confidently enough, but once he was into his sure-fire dry cracker routine, the one that had so convulsed Julius when he saw it before, you could see that the lack of response, or even a vague flicker of interest from the sisters, was beginning to get to him. Despite their best efforts, he was going to get a laugh out of them. He cranked the business up a notch, and then another, and by the end he was giving it everything he had, all directed at the stage-left box. The house was howling, but in the box all was still. One of the nuns actually yawned. To top the act off, Charlie threw himself into a stage fall of such extravagant violence that I felt sure he must have broken something, perhaps even his neck, but the slapstick met with the same blank disinterest as everything else from the Sisters of No Mercy. He hauled himself into the wings, exhausted, emotionally wrung out from the effort of trying and failing to make his rivals respond. And there they were, all four of them, standing in the dark, waiting for him to come off. "'Well done, my friend,' Julius said, clapping him on the back. "'Sorry we didn't get to see the whole thing. Maybe tomorrow.' "'But,' Charlie gasped, "'weren't you in the box?' "'I bought some tickets, but in the end I gave them away to some sisters. They do such marvellous work, don't you think?' And that's what Charlie got for not laughing at the Marx Brothers. After this prickly beginning, we became firm friends with the Marx boys, even Charlie did. For the rest of that week, we spent a lot of time together, frequenting the local pool hall during the day and drinking into the small hours after work. Leonard affected an Italian tough guy accent when playing pool, and he was a dab hand at the game, taking considerably more than loose change off Freddy and me. One evening, Stan and I were in the bar waiting for the boys to show when Charlie and Tilly came over to join us. He was bright as a button, but she seemed to have the cares of the world upon her shoulders. "'Evening, fellows,' Charlie chirruped. "'What are we drinking to? The future?' "'Whatever happened to that idea of yours about going into hog farming?' I said. "'Oh, that nonsense,' Charlie snorted. "'What was I thinking?' "'So that dream bit the dust, did it? "'Bit the mud,' Stan chipped in. "'To be perfectly honest, I was reading in one of the manuals "'about the method for castrating the creatures, "'and it put me off my food for a good couple of days. "'I may never eat another sausage as long as I live.' "'He nudged Tilly, who gave him a brief, mirthless smile.' "'No, it's another spin around the old Sullivan and Considine carousel, "'guaranteed work for another six months at least, "'and we shall all make our fortunes.' <laughs> Stan grunted. "'Not on what Carno's paying, we won't.' "'I'm serious,' Charlie insisted. "'I went to a fortune-teller back in San Francisco, "'little shop on Market Street, your future told for a dollar. "'The seer was a little round Chinese woman, "'and I think she was halfway through her dinner when I came in.' "'So she didn't foresee your visit, then,' I said. "'That should have told you something.' "'Ha!' Charlie cried good-naturedly. She shuffled some cards and laid them out on the table. Then she had a good old squint at my palms. You know what she said? I'm afraid my psychic powers are at a low ebb today, I said. She said that I had money-making hands. Yes. She also said that I will make a fortune in a different business to the one I'm currently in. But she was wrong about that, of course. Otherwise she'd have said you had hog-castrating hands. Well, ah, quite. Also, I can look forward to at least three marriages and any number of children, apparently. Tilly looked down at her own hands, her lips pursed tightly together. Charlie shrugged. So you see, he continued brightly, the future's rosy. Excuse me, boys, Tilly said, standing up quickly. An early night for me, I think. Before Charlie could get to his feet and accompany her, she hurried over to Amy, and the two of them grabbed their coats and hats and disappeared arm in arm into the night. Well... Charlie said. What was that about? Perhaps it was the talk of all these marriages of yours, Stan said. You surely didn't need a fortune teller to tell you how well that would go down, did you? Charlie frowned, and I smiled inwardly. Cracks were appearing. 
On the Friday, I happened to glance into the ladies' dressing room where I saw, unless I was seriously mistaken, Tilly being comforted by Amy Reeves. It was just a glance, because Amy reached over and pushed the door to when she saw me outside looking in, but I was suddenly thrilled. Was something finally happening between her and Chaplin? I paid close attention to Charlie that evening, and although he was capable enough on stage, he did seem distracted somehow. Interesting. I was keen to pump Stan, his perennial roommate, for the inside track, but the two of them raced off together at the end of the show without coming for the customary drink or five, and so I was left to my own fevered speculations. The next morning, I was up and about, bright and early for once. In truth, I hadn't really slept, my mind buzzing with curiosity. As early as I thought decent for knocking on a theatrical hotel room door, I strolled along the corridor to tempt Charlie and Stan to join me for breakfast. I was keen to try and glean whatever tidbits I could to feed my growing optimism, but both were already up and out and about somewhere. Curiouser and curiouser. Then, at the theatre, I noticed to my private glee that the only time Tilly and Charlie spoke to one another was on stage, and then afterwards neither they nor Stan lingered long. Even more interesting. On the Sunday, we boarded the Carnot boxcar one more time for one of the longest hauls of the whole tour, 750 miles up to Salt Lake City. It was a gruelling ride, though undeniably spectacular, as we crossed deserts peppered with strangely compelling red-brown rock monoliths, clung to the sides of towering gorges, skirted the Grand Canyon itself, and finally emerged onto the flatlands of Utah. Despite the breathtaking primeval scenery, however, most of the time I only had eyes for the far end of the carriage, where Chaplin glumly gazed out of one window, while Tilly stared fixedly out of another. I was in agonies wanting to go over and talk to her, and find out how things stood, but I forced myself to bide my time and leave it to her. We arrived in Salt Lake City at sunset. I went for a stroll among the lengthening shadows and a sort of shimmering heat haze, even though it was January, it made the whole place seem like some bizarre mirage plucked from an Arabian night, and for the first time in weeks I smiled to myself as I thought that my fairy tale, mine and Tilly's, might just have a happy ending after all. The next day, our first at the Salt Lake Empress, Charlie seemed a little more chipper, which put a little dampener on things for me. I tried to catch sight of Tilly, but the ladies' dressing room door remained closed, and their timing was so precise that I didn't see any of the girls in the wings before our sig music began, and it was time for Freddie and me to bustle on stage. Charlie appeared as Archibald Binks soon enough, but the audience didn't seem that impressed. There was an odd aloofness about the Utah people, none of the friendly fun of San Francisco, say, or the lively vivacity of Butte. We went through the motions of Archie's initiation into the society of wow-wows until we reached the sequence in which the girls would come along and tease him. I glanced over, and there was Amy, there was Emily, there was Wren and Annie Forrester, and that was all. Where was Tilly? I peered into the wings, thinking she might be there in the shadows, hastily buttoning herself up, having left it just too late, but no. Was she unwell? She'd have to be feeling pretty poorly to risk missing another show after the wigging she got from Alf for taking that night off in New York. There was a silence suddenly that grew and grew until I realised I'd missed a cue and blurted out my line just as Stan started busking something to cover for me so we both spoke at once. I flashed him an apologetic look and then tried to concentrate as I stumbled through to the end curtain. A trio of trick cyclists bounded past me in their red and gold leotards as I caught Amy by the elbow. Amy, I hissed. Where's Tilly? Is she ill? Amy turned to me, 
her face a picture of sorrow and pity. "'Oh, sweetheart, she's gone.' "'What?' I said, far too loud. Amy hushed me and dragged me over to the stairs. "'What do you mean she's gone?' I said, holding both her shoulders tight. "'She's gone. She quit. She's left the tour, left the company.' I couldn't take this in, but I saw her. She was on the train. Yes, and she stayed on the train all the way to Chicago. She'll be practically in New York by now. I'm sorry, Arthur. But she didn't say anything. No, nor to me neither. She left a letter for Alf. She said she'd just had enough and was going back to England. I slumped down onto the hard stone steps, and Amy laid her hand against my cheek. I'm sorry, darling. Really, I am, she said, and then left me alone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.